We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured in Celluloid, a podcast about movies, which of course is here on Make Time for This, the Eurostep Podcast Network's channel for pop culture and other things. And we're proudly a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Andrew, how are you doing? Doing well. I need to... I need to come clean with you, Adam. Uh, this is the second podcast in a row where I'm coming in hot um, with some wine in my system. Today is my third wedding anniversary, and we're treating this oh, like uh, we're treating we this like a recording. Three... No, we're treating this like a three-day festival. This now. God. We're treating this like a three-day festival. So we did great dinner at this German restaurant. I got some uh, red cabbage and uh, currywurst. Fantastic. Then, to, uh, uh, but and it works out perfectly. Early dinner, wife's got to be up. She's a teacher. She does a real job, not like me. And then tomorrow, you know, we do takeout from our favorite takeout restaurant. And then Friday, we do in person dinner number two. So three years, three different nights of meals is how we're celebrating this. But I had a great Pinot Noir with dinner. Now I'm trying to calm it down with some green tea. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, also to address the elephant in the room, we are a world in mourning. I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. My tomato plant finally died and, uh, no more tomatoes for the rest of the, the end of the summer. And I'm just really in mourning about that. So to answer your question, Adam, I'm doing really well. Well, first of all, yeah, definitely some wine. Second of all, I feel like an asshole now, so... There is no circumstance in which your lovely wife is listening to this. But if she is, I apologize. I was not aware that I was pulling you away on your anniversary night. So that's that's my no. Bad. It fit it fit into the already set plan of the three day celebration. So it worked out perfectly. Uh, and uh, yeah, currywurst and uh, red cabbage and Pinot Noir and a hair right. tomato plant. <laughs> if you if you say so. Uh, what are we talking about in this episode? We're talking about movies. This is a captured satellite. More specifically, though, we're talking about two all-time classics from Steven Spielberg. 
Those being ETDX Terrestrial and Jaws. There is a chance you're asking, why are you talking about ET and Jaws? Why those two movies? Why two Spielberg movies? Why not wait until the Fablemans as new movies out at the end of the year? What is going on here? And what is going on is that I have seen these movies in theaters in the past two weeks. I saw Jaws earlier today. I saw E.T. last week. And that was part of an initiative that has also played out, it seems like, across the world, certainly in the U.S. I think it's a couple of weeks removed now, but the same thing happened. There was two weeks of E.T. in theaters, two weeks of Jaws in theaters. Both of these movies have been uh, remastered somewhat for IMAX and re-released in IMAX and in uh, Jaws case also re-released in 3D which is obviously a gimmick that I do think in a much more primitive way and um, was implemented at times with the original too so this just seemed like a really good opportunity to talk about these two all-time classic movies which there's never a bad time to talk about E.T. and Jaws but it also does point to something more interesting in regard to just the state of movies, the state of cinema right now and the theatrical movie going experience. And it's something we kind of seem to talk about a lot. We find ourselves just stumbling into that kind of conversation on a lot of episodes, even on some TV episodes we've recently done. And with that, I thought, well, let's have that conversation again, but let's have it with, a tighter focus and that's how we'll kick this off so this is a pretty grim spell the past month or so has been pretty tough for theaters a big bounce back year overall with some massive massive movies none more so than top gun maverick and some more things on the horizon that i guess distributors exhibitors will all hope they are going to hit in a big way, probably Black Panther more than anything else, um, and continue what has generally been a strong year. But the reality is we have come to something of a lull. It does not mean that there are not some good movies out there. There are. Um, but there are not the kind of movies out there that are going to draw audiences out in droves. And considering we're still only really just into September, we're just coming over kind of the final death knell of summer, it is somewhat unusual that August was kind of as quiet as it was theaters. There wasn't something that really pulled people in and that managed to get any kind of really healthy gross going. I think the last thing that would have been expected to have any chance of that was bullet train. It did not open very well. And I think ultimately it's going to do pretty solid business just because there wasn't anything coming after it and it got to hang around for a really long time is actually still hanging around over here anyway. And it seems like people are going to see it. So whether it's positive word about, or it's just, there's nothing else new on something like bullet train is surviving, but we have an industry that is crumbling. The third biggest exhibitor in the world is on the verge of filing for bankruptcy. Um, That is, the chain of cinemas where I, in fact, saw both of these movies to uh, give some insight into that. That theater for all of my years, many years going there, always open 10 a.m. every day. Not anymore. Last week, 
time pushed back to 1 p.m. This week, the time is pushed back to 2 p.m. And honestly, next week, I'm kind of like, are there going to be listings at all? That is just kind of, I think, really a snapshot of where movies are at in a big way. So what's happened to try and save the summer to, I guess, throw a bone to theaters and be like, look, we know we need you there for any other blockbusters coming later in the year. We know we need you there for when the Oscar movies come out. There's an extra way of interest in those. How are we going to keep the lights on? And the answer, it seems, is that Universal and IMAX teamed up with Amblin Entertainment. And Steven Spielberg said, yeah, you can re-release E.T. We can make it a 40th anniversary tie-in and you can re-release Jaws. And I think this is a good idea because I got to see both of these movies on a big screen for the first time. Seeing both of them in IMAX is a pretty special experience and I enjoyed it a lot. But I do also think it's troubling that two of the greatest summer blockbusters of all time, um, respectively 40 and 47 years old now, are essentially being, you know, I don't know, pulled out of retirement to come and draw audiences. It's something I've always thought there should be more of, more repertory screenings, but I do think this is something very particular, which is, trying to almost have these things land in a much bigger way than you'd expect and with a little bit more noise purely because there's a there's a gap in the schedule now we can debate what that is part of it is COVID hangover and i think finally some of the gaps in production catching up um part of it is the way COVID changed the distribution ecosystem where all of a sudden a lot of stuff went to streaming and We've now reached a point where a lot of streamers are like, yeah, we won't be doing that anymore because we cannot make our money back that way. But these two movies having to come back, draw audiences, is something that in one way I'm like, yeah, we should see more of this kind of thing. And the other way, this is essentially a month where two of the biggest movies in big multiplexes here are E.T. and Jaws. And I don't know if that is the future of what a movie-going experience is, is that there's just, you know, all new movies will just be available at home and it will be repertory screenings where people are like, oh, this is a classic, we can get people out for this. I don't know what it is. But to me, it is something that I can't say I haven't been thinking about a little bit troubled by in spite of having the great experience of seeing these on the big screen. You watch both of these movies at home, um, in part because the US equivalent of this run was a little bit earlier, and we've only decided on this episode in the last couple of weeks. But do you have any thoughts on that, even just the idea of it generally? Like, I think if we were to if we were to translate these circumstances to any other medium in an art sense, or if we were to do something we might often do and think of it in a sporting context it's like bringing you know an all-time great you know they're past their best they're they've been retired for a long time but they've got to come out of retirement to save the day to see you through this tough tough spell i this would be like andrew to dip into another podcast the brewer's just being like right now ryan braun we need you back you've got to come back right now and help us make the playoffs i don't know i think people would love that idea people who were big fans of Ryan Braun would be like, yeah, you know what? I'll watch that. 
is it good though? Is it good for the product? Is it good for the bigger picture where all of this is going? I I really am so sure. Yeah, a hologram of the season Robin Yaunt hit 29 home runs <laughs> is uh, going to play shortstop for the Brewers this weekend. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite something, and I think uh, it's a trend that I like in some sense, and I think obviously, to your point, is came along at a probably vital and important time where it was actually needed and more of a pragmatic thing than than it should be um unfortunately i have a theater near me and they do they do it in a more balanced way where it's wednesday sunday screenings two screenings a day one screen has a flashback movie and so there's that one movie has its week run they do another one unfortunately for me the lord of the rings run came after our podcast review uh going through that trilogy um but it is unfortunate if film keeps trending that way. And one thing that I uh, ranted about a few weeks ago was that, you know, it it shouldn't be on audience to be trained in their viewing habits. But I think the last few years, more to your point, that episode, people's viewing habits are changing and they're being changed by the delivery system of how movies are coming out. And if that's changed them in a way that becomes permanent, the reality that you're fearing could be something that happens. I mean, I, I'm probably, I'm a big movie fan, a casual movie goer. And I like the idea that I would have to live in a world where in the middle of the summer, I mean, August, there's something that's dropped in there that I just have to see. And I'm behind the times if I haven't seen it. And obviously at this time, in the year 2022 that hasn't happened which is giving the unfortunate opportunity for okay what are our big movies this week going to be it's going to be jaws or it's going to be et and i do like the idea of this being a thing that's regular and that we pay attention to classics and that you know we take the time to revisit films even not in this sense uh like obviously these are two like you said the big summer blockbusters of all time i like the idea of there being a room in or being room in like in-person cinema for also kind of revisionist viewing of movies that maybe didn't get enough appreciation at the time but that's steering more niche rather than it's a necessity that we have these in our big screens otherwise we just don't have anything that's going to get people into the cinema so it's definitely a both a welcome thing in front of our faces and also troubling if it becomes something that really has to be relied on to keep the lights on yeah i mean i'm a big fan of repertory cinema and two of the the more independent cinemas i go to which are generally more art house fair not entirely they will regularly do this and they will have a mix of new and old cinema and they could have a season celebrating a director or whatever it is it could and it just all kind of seamlessly meshes. That's not what multiplex cinema is about. And I'm always pretty kind of, I always try to lock in that as much as so many of my movie going experiences may not be in that environment. A lot of them are, a lot of them are um, because I've an unlimited membership for a multiplex. So it's a really easy way for me to see 
as close to everything as possible. Um, I'm always careful to not just focus on the other kind of experience because that is not the average moviegoer's experience. Because whether it's a city or whether it's a suburb, whether it's in Ireland, whether it's in the US, that is definitely the reality for most people who go see a movie is it's a could be a eight screen, 10 screen, 20 screen, whatever it could be, but it is a multiplex. It's likely part of a chain and it's trade is stock and trade is new movies. It's what's new and it keeps on churning. And some things might only have one screening and they last a week and other things are going to play and play and play. And they're going to hold in there for a long, long time. And I guess that's where this comes in because the fact that you're bringing back in a featured kind of way, like, so for example, um, the theater I saw both these movies, 17 screen multiplex, it's Cineworld in Dublin for anyone, this part of the world and one IMAX screen. These two movies are holding on the IMAX screen, like, 66% of the screenings in the IMAX screen over two to three weeks. That is wild. Wild. For movies that I would say 70% of the population, if not more, have seen, like who hasn't seen E.T. or Jaws, that's crazy. And part of that, what it makes me think about is, and particularly then you watch these movies, and we're going to get into talking all about E.T. and all about Jaws, and just how spectacular they are, how special they are as big summer blockbusters. We often do it like, you know, oh, they don't make them like that anymore. Why don't they make them like that? I think the striking thing is this feels like something of a resignation to most of what they're making is not connecting with audiences in the way that they need to, to get them through the summer. Like, this literally feels like Hollywood ran out of big summer blockbusters, which is wild because no matter what's happening with the the landscape of how movies are distributed and what goes to streaming and what goes to theaters, one of the, the things that studios remain firmly committed to is, oh, yeah, big blockbusters, because that's where you're going to get money. And this is the... This is the time to kind of reap your rewards to go and do that. Now, obviously, Top Gun Maverick gets to do that. And beyond that, this has been a very successful summer at the box office. But Top Gun Maverick came out a long time ago, and it's held for a long time. And at this point, but very close to how, however many people are going to see it in theaters have seen it. And when you go on the knock-on of that, then it's like, okay, well, what else could have been here? And it does come to, like, Bullet Train. It comes to what I believe is probably the last movie you saw in a theater. Is the last movie you saw in a theater? Nope. Yeah, it has to be. Like, nope. If nope was Get Out, in terms of word-of-mouth hit, hooking audiences in, and then having real staying power, they may not be bumping it from IMAX, particularly with all the IMAX tie-ins in that film to show Jaws, although Jaws is a perfect double header with Nope. Um, R.E.T. Just may not be doing it at all. Like, the planning is in place from before that, but I think it creates a different kind of landscape, some 
different and interesting questions if nope really is a word of mouth sensation and people really latch on to that. And I don't know. Even when you watch E.T. and you watch Jaws and you're like, what is it that, so that is missing from modern blockbusters to not be like that? Maybe something like Nope is trying to be too intellectual in places and that just doesn't work for a large swathe of moviegoers. And then on the other extreme, I think there's probably a lot of stuff which just does not have anything going on upstairs at all. And it's not engaging. It's not well made. It doesn't look good. <laughs> um, part of that is maybe the over-reliance on CGI that comes into all this. It's very striking when you watch Jaws and you watch E.T., and you think of, for all of the fantastical elements of play, um, for all of the bits that may not be the most convincing, both hold up really well, and just the magic of believing in it through practical effects pays off. That's something too, but I just, it's it's like there's a happy medium that gets ignored right now. That certainly extends to the story in terms of how these movies are constructed, in terms of what characters are like. I just... I don't know, bowled over as I am by revisiting E.T. and Jaws. The fact that they are needed to plug gaps in a summer movie schedule, in part because it feels like Hollywood does not know how to make summer movies that resonate like this anymore, is fascinating and also alarming. And it's it's not like, oh, there's no Jaws this year you're not going to have Jaws every year. You're not going to have E.T. every year. But there was a time where at least the promise of that would have people a lot more invested. And for all the things that have changed, I do think it is just generally worth noting, and it has to be accepted, movies have changed too. I Blockbusters are pretty crappy. Like, And we say this as you know, two people who've gone on the record, we are not the biggest Marvel fans. Like you see these movies and then I find it tough to even just be like, oh, Marvel blockbusters. And this is a block. Like it really is just so off in its own realm and its own thing, almost bringing to mind uh, Scorsese's, you know, team park comments about Marvel, about superhero movies, because yeah, they are just something entirely different to this, but this thing, which once was kind of the lifeblood of the studios, of the exhibitors. Do people try to do it anymore? Are the studios not prepared to greenlight it? Are, are writers, directors just not thinking in that way? Has CGI made their ideas maybe more ambitious in a way that actually leads to something that, I don't know, lacks, lacks some sort of grounding or heart? Do they think, oh, the only way I can get in is by making movies that are sub 10 million? I I honestly, I don't know what it is, but I think also in this year with Top Gun Maverick hitting the way it does, Top Gun Maverick does capture something that feels closer to these films than, oh, I don't know. A blockbuster has done for a very, very long time. Yeah, uh, Top Gun and it being something of existing, like, IP in terms of a film that came before it is really the only thing I can think of as a point of comparison to what a like a what a Jaws would have been at the time because I mean it really is when you consider what would be 
what you're looking forward to as a big summer movie or spring fall whenever they choose to do it i can't keep up with the marvel calendar but those are what you build a release schedule around as like a movie fan that's thinking about blockbusters most years and if they're duds like i guess they've been this year i don't know i've got a lot of uh catching up to do on marvel i'll get to that in 2026 or something but i mean you just look at jaws even at the service level obviously it was based on a book uh, a lot of creative license taken by uh those who worked on the film i've come to learn in recent years but it's an original story to an extent that's grounded in realism it's a thriller it's a monster movie to a degree with actors who at the time would have been considered famous i mean uh roy schneider uh richard dreyfus robert shaw i'm you know were recognizable but it's it's not like chris evans playing captain america and robert downey jr playing iron man and what those films have come to be and yet it was a movie that i guess because of the story because of just the action the excitement and then the word of mouth buzz that it got it just became uh a behemoth i mean nine million dollar budget 476 million box office for just a big bold summer movie and it i'm really struck like if top gun hadn't happened i'd be really struggling to imagine something even in the realm the ballpark the conversation even if there's not an apples to apples comparison with those two films I, I struggle to see where we'll ever see something like Jaws again. It's just, it, it seems, and it has come from a different world, a different time. <laughs> and it, it just seems like a different like universe to this point, just the way content I'll call it is consumed in, in the way that some things are churned out in the, the Netflix world or the Amazon world. And some of the, with the streaming wars and how that's become part of the equation and just the, marvel behemoth that is box office film and something that is that level of scale in terms of just action and boldness and uh just capturing the the attention of film goers i mean jaws in particular and and et i guess would would scale up from there because it takes it to a whole nother level by capturing another audience and that it's a coming of age in a family movie i don't know just what spielberg was doing uh, in the beginning half of his career is something that i don't think another filmmaker will ever be able to replicate just because of the nature of the business yeah we'll we'll transition over to that in a second then we'll talk about maybe some of the ways i don't know if jaws is to ever happen again if something like that is to happen i think just like technically so the things that need to start happening that people need to start trying because there is a reason the two films we're going to talk about are as special as they are it's because they are amazingly well made like it goes without saying spielberg is a master director but this is very early in his career and he's trying stuff and there are big bold techniques used to great effect that I think for an average moviegoer, you'd have sat in the tea and you're like, whoa, I don't know what's happening there, but that looks really cool. This is something that I need to see on a big screen, which is part of the thing that has died out in our culture. Let me run through, Andrew. I mean, I'm focusing on these two movies. Makes sense for us to do this. But let me run through some of the other things currently playing in 
my same multiplex theater i saw these these are I, uh, I bought these are tickets not... for saturday by the way uh while we were having this conversation so you'll be happy okay i'm excited to hear more about that these are not new releases i'm talking about right and this is a list this is this is the extent of the situation right now because it's not just jaws and et coming back in imax are you familiar with 40x have you got 40x as in actual 40 i think it's a branded thing like imax where it probably does translate to the states yeah i see it on uh, amazon before i rent things when i realize my tv is probably not nice enough for it to matter no that's 4k oh 4k okay whatever then i have no 4, idea 40x is is it where like the, the shark attacks me while i'm in my seat it's where the chair thing? will move and you'll get water and all this stuff like spraying you get the mist completely different anyway like very much the literal theme park experience but there is a similar thing where these have been re-released for imax jaws and et currently playing in 40x again this is the sort of thing normally what's the big movie it would have this locked down nothing else would be getting in instead christopher nolan's entire dark knight trilogy is currently playing in 40x Interstellar currently playing at 40x and The Fast and the Furious currently playing at 40x. I was hoping Pearl would get a 40x uh, release. <laughs> it doesn't end there, Andrew, because there's also another film, not quite as old, but not a new release that um, has come out. I don't know if you're aware of this. Uh, Spider Man No Way Home. Th- uh, them more fun stuff with more fun stuff I don't know what they're calling it basically an extended edition of Spider-Man No Way Home is currently in theaters and I'm sure again doing pretty good business for that so one of if not the biggest film of last year I'm pretty sure it was the biggest film of last year in terms of gross uh, back in theaters with an extended edition and even just looking ahead um, a film that Spielberg's involvement in is always a source of debate, but next week coming to 40X in the same theater is a 4K remaster of Poltergeist. So, like, part of all of that is great, and there's a lot of that that I'm actually actively interested in, where you could get me to go and see, like, most of those movies on a big screen. But just the sheer volume of it, if I'm not me... And I don't have even the knowledge to be like, look, it's just, it's a rough kind of month for new releases. This stuff is coming down the line. Everything will be fine soon. If I was just average person, I'm like, oh, what's up with the movies? I'd look at that and I'd be like, holy shit, are movies, like, are movies finished? Where are all the new movies? What's going on? Why is there no big action movie for me to go and see that I haven't already seen 10 years ago? Like, it's I don't know I'm having I'm having a moment here but it's just it's it's a little unnerving honestly it's a little unnerving as much as I loved getting CET and Jaws um, the fact that they are there because they are the only show in town something needs to save the day does concern me let's get on to those that's why shut for 40x coming <laughs> oh, or... that, that would be a different experience of some sort <laughs> Who knows, though? Maybe by Christmas, that's the point they've got to. It's like, oh, there's no good, no good Christmas movies this year. Got, got to bring Eyes Wide Shut to 4DX or IMAX. Who knows? I'm not ruling anything out at this point. The that's movies themselves. Happy holidays. <laughs> sure. 
uh, I was kind of this is ridiculous because I knew all this already. I've watched these movies countless times in my life, one more so than the other up until recently. But the thing that really just jumps out with these two is the filmmaking. <laughs> like, they are so exceptionally well made using tricks of the trade, different shot setups, imaginative editing. Um, in the case of Jaws and E.T., one of the greatest composers of all time, producing maybe his two, well, you can't say it's two best scores. That would just take Star Wars out of the equation, but you're right there. Look, you're you're up there with John Williams' very best work, and you just kind of go like across the board, and you're like, Jesus Christ, if movies were made like this. Jaws in particular, it was striking to me today where... Jaws is doing so many interesting things in the first half hour, like technically, formally, that aren't the big flashy things that give you the payoff, but they're actually more in some of the more mundane moments relatively in the movie. And yet Spielberg is just constantly finding interesting ways to set up scenes, to move his camera through the space, to build tension. Uh, The most famous of them is the dolly zoom known as the vertigo zoom some people refer to it as the jaws zoom now that's not a thing it's it's the vertigo zoom that's where that's where it came from that's the name that i've always known it as and seen it as in textbooks the like of that sort of thing but the dolly zoom which i think if you don't know what it is you will know it to see um it's Roy Scheider looking out onto the beach. We're getting a close-up on his face. And a dolly zoom is achieved by having a dolly laid and basically dollying in one direction while zooming in the opposite direction. So dolly in, zoom out. And what that does is it kind of warps the planes. It creates this kind of really interesting effect where the background kind of starts to shrink in, distort, and... I don't know. It allows you to, to be placed with inside the, the mind, the psyche of the character on the screen. It's one of the simpler but more interesting techniques that you can use. You don't see it very often. You certainly just wouldn't see it for something like this early in a blockbuster movie. No one in Marvel movies is doing dolly zooms. Um, that's obviously one of them. There's a fantastic split diopter shot before that um, where the guy who has the dark swimming cap that originally Brody thinks is the shark from the water where he keeps craning his head and we're just getting people kind of brushing across his field of vision, which Spielberg is using as cutting points to almost jump cut to close-ups. Just again, really great work in terms of cinematography and editing. But we get this shot, which it's, a classic of uh, Spielberg's friend and peer from that time, Brian De Palma. No one loves the split diopter more than him. We talked about it a lot when we talked about blowout, but you get right up in his face on the right side of the screen. You get this old guy with a swim cap and on the left side of the screen, we're looking right out to the ocean at what's happening there. Not just showy for showy's showing the sake. It's you're, you're really effectively kind of conveying where 
the character's headspace is of what, what he's trying to focus on and what's encroaching on his vision and everything is in focus and there's a lot to take in all at once. Like, these are not groundbreaking techniques by any means at this point, but we just don't see stuff like that. It just doesn't happen. Nobody tries to do things like this, even in the best blockbusters. I mean, there's lots of technically impressive scenes in Top Gun Maverick, but they are very kind of straightforward camera setups. It's more like, oh yeah, I really liked how they used, you know, the IMAX camera strapped to the plane. That looked great rather than what are you doing with your camera? How are you making the camera work for your setup? That's, I don't know. It's just something that feels like it's missing. Maybe part of that is the imagination of someone like Spielberg that he's not just using them because be like, wouldn't it be cool to use? They're always perfectly placed. But again, it feels like something that for someone who doesn't know what those techniques are, how they're happening, why they're happening, they just know when they're sitting on in a theater and it's on a massive screen in front of them. Wow, that looks cool. <laughs> Which, to be really reductive, it's part of what movies like these are supposed to be like. It's part of what big summer blockbusters should be. And that to me is just maybe the most apparent thing, which it doesn't take Spielberg to do that. Maybe it takes Spielberg to always get it right, to not be uh, wasteful in his use of kind of some more flashy techniques. But I did find it very, very striking. Just how good the craft was across the board in these movies and how some of that work just immediately elevates it. And you're sitting there and you're like, this is this is worth me kind of pouring over every inch of the screen, every piece of every frame, because at any moment there could be something creative, inventive that's going to happen here, which is going to bring me kind of deeper into this world. It's going to draw me into the movie. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
And uh, I think, I guess one of the choices that was made was, if I remember this correctly from past research, more of a pragmatic reason due to difficulties with the shark itself. I think this is just one of the great films in building suspense and the monster movie thriller elements. I, I think what Spielberg does and how he builds up to this release uh, is just genius because, and, and I compared it to, to Nope as well, because that's another one where it's like we, we, we know something that's, we know something's afoot. We know something's going on. And then eventually we get the big reveal and it's well-earned because of that. Uh, I'm one of the film goers who in seeing Jaws is just like, yes, that looks cool. I mean, as you're mentioning the vertigo zoom with uh, just right in on Roy Schneider's face is just uh, an iconic shot. And one that stands out just as much as the shark when you think about Jaws. Um, But building that suspense and making it feel like a horror movie where you've got this centrally grounded group of characters who are the uh, reluctant voice of reason that no one will listen to is just I think kind of a a classic movie theme that really fits in here I think the the development and introduction of character in this movie surrounded by all of the craft and marvel there really works nicely I mean Schneider Dreyfus and Shaw really balance each other out. You've got Schneider, I guess, playing what Spielberg would have thought at the time was against type because of his role in the French Connection. And uh, Roy Schneider, kind of a, a square jawed, like man's man type of actor. But in this role, he's very subdued and almost passive in a way that really works for the film. And then you've got Dreyfus's. Uh, I guess bleeding wound anxiety mixed with uh, the quiet unhinged nature of Robert Shaw and I think everything with with the shark with the just the the visual nature of the open ocean shots some of the navigations we take around the beach when we go to the scene where they're exploring all of the I guess the the underwater wreckage and just unpacking different things and unfurling this narrative about what shark is actually committing these things all of the visual standout moments from that journey is not it's not undersold by i think both the character development and just the performances that are going on i i think uh spielberg going into this project would have been not someone at project like i'm we're being fucking funded and uh i'm like uh just like set forth on this journey with you adam i don't know self-importance what am i doing spielberg would not have been someone where i'm like oh yeah this guy you know he's in my top five of directors that i talk about every time i want to seem like i'm smarter than i am but spielberg's a guy that when you go down his filmography has some of my favorite movies of all time and i would have said that about jaws before rewatching it for probably the fifth or sixth time and i'll keep saying it now i think it's a five-star movie if there ever was one and uh, i'm only uh, upset that my inability to stay in one place at any moment in time kept me from from viewing this on the big screen. Um, I mean, it's got some of my favorite just visuals of all time and then just scenes in general. And every every single time I watch this, for some reason, I'm surprised by how much I love how the drunken boat scene 
develops into the story about the um, USS Indianapolis and how it goes from uh, three mismatched souls uh, finally finding a way to connect and become human to one another to this almost campfire tale of horror. I think that's just a, one, a brilliant scene. I love it every time. And then uh, like I, I, the, the way I described it to you after seeing it uh, again for this time is the ending still fucks and i uh, wholeheartedly agree uh agree with myself in that moment as well uh, when i'm just in a moment like the film goer you described and i'm like oh they did this that was awesome and yeah i couldn't say enough about uh how jaws just strikes me every single time i see it when you say the ending, the funny thing with that is I always forget what the actual ending right. is. Yes. <laughs> the the actual ending is so quiet and underwhelming. And the credits roll over, you know, continued swimming towards the shore. And I, I don't know, even as I was to say, I was like, did I really do we not see them get back to shore? Why why do I why do I think that? Um I mean t- to some of your points there, Jaws was an absolute disaster of a production just an all-time nightmare production spielberg has talked a lot about it uh he shot it on the ocean and that is a really dumb thing to do if you're making a movie on the water there is a reason why they do this stuff in you know tanks on studio lots where you have control over everything um it was only his third film, I think. Dill, Sugarland Express, and Jaws. Yeah, that seems right. And Dill was like a TV movie as such. So really an experience, and he's taking on something that is just incredibly difficult. Uh, you allude to the not showing the shark, Bruce, I think, which is what they named um, the model for the shark that we see throughout Jaws. Yeah, that's because it just was not working. They found it very difficult to work this model in ways that gave them what they needed in scenes. Um, The whole process involved with keeping the shark in the condition it needed to be from scene to scene was just really, really difficult and very labor-intensive. So everything about this movie was kind of a disaster until it was released and it was the most successful movie of all time at that point as far as I remember um, like that is fascinating in its own right but then it comes down to okay well the whole thing may be a mess but who's making it who's in it like how does it come together something like I should have mentioned but didn't I believe the camera operator responsible for the dolly zoom in jaws uh, is michael chapman who went on of course to be a cinematographer in his own right and probably most famous as a cinematographer for shooting taxi driver and raging bull so like that's the kind of caliber of people that are are there down the line obviously we already talked with john williams as the composer um i find the casting of this film to be really interesting because it still doesn't feel obvious, and yet now it would be impossible to imagine anyone else in, for me, honestly, any of the three leading roles. That's just, they are all perfect. 
and the dynamics between the three characters perfect that like what what can you say about it what can you say about robert shaw in jaws like it's one of the most iconic performances of all time is it like is everything he says clear and audible absolutely not um but i i think there's i think sadly particularly considering um how young he died there was quite a bit of uh, quint in robert shaw at the time this movie was filmed where there's certainly some some crossover there um but at some point we need to talk about the sting on this podcast but carry on <laughs> that's a good idea i like that idea we need to find an in what we'll what we'll do to, to do a sting podcast um the other thing that i wanted to talk about because I feel it's tough to talk about Jaws, particularly at this. If it's back in theaters in 2022 and we're talking about it as a 2022 movie, I feel like Jaws is the classic movie that has been used as a stand in for more situations than anything else over the past three years. We could possibly go back further for some political figures, but the mayor in Jaws and his decision-making process, I just continues to be held up as something truly iconic. Um, I remember very frequently being used as a comparison to Boris Johnson's strategy for containing COVID in the UK. Um, and I just feel like I've seen like endless Twitter memes for so many different things where it's referencing the mayor from Jaws, which with good reason, because one, it makes the film to Marie Hamilton is really great, really, really great. And every time he appears on screen as an audience member, I don't know, you kind of feel some glee as much as he's just being completely ridiculous. He's pretty irritating. And I, I don't know, is his heart in the right place? Is he just looking after the interests of all the local people? maybe he's an idiot though he's an idiot he can't can't see the forest for the trees i think would be the best way of putting it but it's, did you have any thoughts on all of that and are you also aware of just that thing that i have where i feel like i've seen comparisons of political figures or you know all sorts particularly true covid particularly true elections in various countries in recent years where it seems like there's a lot of people out there in the world just taking the mayor from Jaws approach. I so I watched this on the heels of a full-on football weekend, Adam, the American version of football, and he's really got the misplaced confidence of an NFL head coach. That's a hundred percent what he's doing. Is this the right thing to do? No, but this is what I want to do, and this is what I'm going to do. Also, just Republican politicians in any scenario. I mean, take it, I, you could put his face on any single uh, conservative politician in the United States of America with their take on gun control. Like, that's just like a most apt comparison. Oh, it, it kind of, it, it maps on pretty neatly to, um, we'll say some of the more old-fashioned, actually, like, republican ideas or values like when the republican party maybe was something different it will it would apply to a lot of new republican party ideas too but there is just you know 
he's he's out there protecting the money. You know, this is this is capitalist America at its finest, and the mayor is not going to see anyone out of pocket. He's going to make sure his town comes out on top. His late stage after it's too late. Oh, I really did mess that up. Moment reminds me a lot of uh, a guy that you're familiar with, Nathaniel Hackett, uh, the new head coach <laughs> of the Denver Broncos, who let. 37 seconds or however many seconds uh run off the clock before calling a timeout and kicking a a 64 yard field goal on fourth and five and then the next day being like you know probably shouldn't have done that that's another uh mayoral kind of statement that you know really really hits me where i live as a person that thinks every coach in most sports are just terrible at their jobs but so it's just now that you you've helped enlighten me to this it being the mayor from Jaws, and we just need to bring these memes back during football season. Any other Jaws thoughts? Anything other in particular ta- that kind of jumped out to you? I mean, I like we're not going to go beat for beat on Jaws and tell people about Jaws as if they haven't seen it or go through the plot, but is there anything that surprised you? Any moments you'd forgotten about? Anything like that that really impressed you? Whatever it might be. Uh, I never forget the jump scare. Uh, it's just pitch perfect. Uh, I got, I think it's when Dreyfus is, uh, snorkeling or whatever you want to, yeah, yeah, scuba diving is is the word for it. It's, it lands every time, even though you know it's coming. It's great. Uh, Andrew, it scared the shit out of me today on a big screen with, with, which I mean, Again, I've mentioned John Williams, but these two John Williams scores like loud in an IMAX theater is spectacular. Uh, but that moment, knew it was coming. Couldn't in my, as it was happening, I was trying to pair myself and piece together in my head exactly what does the shot look like? When is it going to appear? I was like, he, he first goes and looks. I'm like, oh, it's going to happen here. It doesn't. And I'm like, oh, okay. What does he, how does he, and before I know it, I'm trying to think about it. And there's a head on screen. And I was just like jumped clean up off my seat. Uh, the shark, despite where we are in, where we are with special effects, still pretty fucking scary, especially when it's got somebody clamped between its jaws. Uh, jaws. I didn't mean to to do that, but I did. And then I had forgotten as well that even though I was like, yeah, the ending still rules. And then the very subdued transition to the real ending. I had forgotten that like it got really hairy for Brody on that boat after uh spoiler alert. I'll throw it up for this movie. That's really old. After, no Shaw, after, after Shaw got got, I forgot like really how submerged that boat got and like how they build you. And we don't know at this point that, and especially if I've never read the Jaws book, anyone that hasn't was did not read the book. Uh, the book is very different. I, I know that much. Yeah, I do remember that from the rewatchables on the ringer that there was a storyline in the book where uh, Dreyfus's character fucks Brody's wife. So yep. uh, that would have been a choice <laughs> for Spielberg to make in this movie. And I believe uh, the mayor, the mayor is keeping the beaches open in the book because he's in debt to the mafia. Much different movie had that been the case. Spielberg made some I... good choices. Yeah, probably one that's less interesting and less grounded. But uh, like, there's a point towards the very end where your mind goes to the place where 
oh, everyone that we've just been following this whole time could be could be dead in the next five minutes. And I you kind of I think the first time you're watching it, maybe you expect it. And then we have this big like Spielbergian like save the day moment. And I think it all really and, you know, I'm a guy that likes sour endings, that likes ambiguous endings, that likes not when everything's wrapped up neatly. And this wasn't, obviously, because one man had just gotten eaten by a shark. But I think the way uh, it plays out and the way it gets to this somewhat triumphant moment really, really does work. And it's just one of the beat-by-beat beat more perfect movies that we've had that can be appreciated on such a mainstream level. Uh, I, I don't know. It's a few years, probably not that long since I watched this. Something that surprised me uh, is that the young woman in the opening scene is completely naked. And this movie was released as PG. And even today when I saw it, it was 12s. And there's a completely naked woman being shot from underwater who then just gets absolutely chewed up by Jaws. And <laughs> just very surprising when that happens because you're like, Oh man, this movie isn't like 18s, which would be NC 17, I guess, for you. Uh, or it's not even or it's like I don't know. That that just really caught me off guard. It's it's one of those things that at some point just concessions were made for Jaws. I don't know what that did to like a whole generation of kids, like when Robert Shaw's just getting like chewed up by by Jaws, but that was something that really I just had forgotten and caught me off guard. I was like, whoa, this is absolutely something that you are not going to see in a movie with that kind of rating today. And to your point on the shark itself, I feel like I've heard a lot of people over the years since, particularly in recent years when technology has completely shifted in a different direction for this kind of stuff, knock the look of Jaws and just... That it's tough to watch because the shark looks so cheap in so many places. I didn't feel that once. Like on a massive IMAX screen, I did not feel that. Like the shark looks pretty damn good. And I think the filmmaking is smart enough to conceal a lot. But you also, when it is on screen, you're not always just looking at the shark, which is kind of crazy but one of the first times we see it we're getting this kind of really clever kind of i don't know craning camera that's kind of sloping in and out over one shoulder and kind of over the other and we're we're kind of we're getting a a pretty good look at brody's perspective then he turns around and he's looking at us so when you're seeing the shark you're also looking at his face There's a lot of that sort of thing going on where the film is smart enough to not just keep being like, here's the shark. You're just looking at the shark. Even when the shark appears, there's other interesting things in the frame that it feels like Spielberg's always like, oh, look over here. Like, this is the really important thing. What's important for you to know is the shark is there on the periphery. But this person is what you should be invested in. This is what I want you to be invested in. So with that, considered i think the shark actually looks pretty good holds up very well all right et uh et the extraterrestrial i re-watched et back in june for the first time since i was a child i don't know what age would have seen et multiple times for sure as a kid and i had COVID 19 
So I was not really going anywhere. I was not going anywhere. I should, I should actually make that crystal clear. <laughs> um, I was going to a I, few places. <laughs> no, I was, I was, I had it bad. I was confined basically to my bed. Um, wasn't watching, doing a whole lot for a lot of it. And it was right around the time that a lot of 40th anniversary ET stuff started to bubble up. And for whatever reason, I was like, I knew I had the Blu-ray, but it was not where I was. It was downstairs, and I wasn't trekking all the way down there to get it, Andrew. It's like, I wonder, is ET streaming? Maybe I'll just put that on the background. It was on Prime. I fired it up, and I was, I mean, just completely blown away. I feel like that's something that I probably say way too often, but I sincerely mean it, where I was just like, holy shit, like, where has this film been the last 20 plus years of my life what what was wrong with me that i just stopped thinking about this film that it became in my head something of like oh yeah et of of course et is great but et is you know it's the kids film and it that's the level it works at um it definitely does work at that level but it works on a level way beyond that too and then for me, the, the level that it also worked on uh, is nostalgia and honestly tapping into the most prime Spielberg elements of like what he likes in his movies, what he tries to do, what a lot of his movies can be about in a way that I honestly, I don't know if any other film just transports me in the same way to feeling like I'm six years old in the house I grew up in with the old TV. I was sitting in front with like a, a VHS playing. That's, that's the feeling that I got from it. Uh, it made, it made me lose my shit. I was sobbing my eyes out in parts again, not something I expected. And I watched it and I was like, that was just amazing. And a couple of weeks went by and my COVID-19 went away and I was like, did that like, did that really happen? Was I, was I right? Was it really that good? Or was I just in a very, very precarious place? Rewatched it. No, it was that good. So for this, finally get a chance to see it on the big screen. You know what? It's just, it's the greatest. It's easily, easily in my top 10 favorite films of all time. Uh, for me, Jaws is indisputable. Jurassic Park, I love it. Indiana Jones, I mean, we can go whatever many ways. This to me is my favorite Spielberg. and It's not close. I just think everything that is like Steven Spielberg, the filmmaker, from all of the stuff that's underappreciated to all of the stuff that is a borderline cliche at this point, the best of it is there in E.T. In a film that, I don't know, I wonder how often people revisit it. I wonder, is it something... I'll let you speak to your experience on that in a second, but I wonder, is it something that everyone sees it as a kid? And maybe for a lot of people, they don't see it again until they're a parent. And that's kind of the cycle of that movie. And on that, even I found myself last week when I'm there watching it on the big screen, I'm like, if, and when someday I have kids, if you were to say to me, what's, what's like the movie that I'd be most excited to show them to be like, they get to a certain age, I'm like, 
here, let's watch this movie. It's E.T. It's 100% E.T. Because I think it's it's got everything in it that it needs to be. This is why movies are magical, but it's also got a lot. Like it's a it's a complex film emotionally. It's doing a lot for a film that I think is primarily thought of as a kid's film. It's filled with joy and wonder and hope and I think uh, very positive messages of kind of understanding and tolerance at the same time. It is deeply distressingly sad in places and unsettling and unnerving. And all of that is great because it's just, it makes you feel a lot of stuff, whether you're a kid, whether you're an adult. So E.T. is probably the biggest revelation of this year for me. So I'm glad this re-release came around. I'm glad I found a way without even having to go out of my way to be like, how can I do this for an episode? How can I get us talking about this? And I think, I'll let you speak to it, but I think I'm glad I did that because it got you to rewatch E.T. too. Yeah, it's it comes to me at a very interesting place with how I received it. I knew you had this reaction, but I actively avoided reading your letterbox review about it. Uh, I probably missed it at the time. And, you know, it was around the time of where you encouraged me to follow other people uh, on letterbox. <laughs> so I missed things more like my, my, that activity. sounds like I'm just so sick of you. I'm just like, Andrew, please follow some other people. I was trying to, Try to broaden. I was trying to enrich your letterbox experience. It's great because now it's easier for me to see things without having seen like what you thought or what my brother thought initially because I've got some other people clocking up the timeline. But on, on that though, it, just to clarify that for people, most people listening who do not probably have letterbox, care letterbox is or follow me on letterbox. I don't review films. It's not something I do. When I do, it doesn't tend to be very detailed. But I was compelled to to write by E.T. and to really kind of in a personal way write. And I'm quite happy with what I wrote about E.T. because I think it's reflective of my experience of watching it. But yeah, continue. The fact that I did that is very much out of the ordinary. And to this point, still have not gone through it for me. And I will after this just to you know, further cement our bond as podcast co-hosts across. Thanks for that. Across pop culture, sports, whatever it may be. Uh, I, so I go into this, I said I'd seen it once. I think I've seen it twice. I think I saw it once as a, re, as a child with relatives who were more inclined at that time to be like, okay, show, show the movies your kids are supposed to watch to your kids. They were big into Indiana Jones. And I think my cousin had watched that 10 million times. So they were showing us ET. Washed over me, don't care. Saw it again as a teenager. Fine. You know, good movie, just do not care. Actively indifferent towards E.T. And the film finding me where it did now as I try and live my life and process the world around me. I think the world around me and my life experience, even though I'm not a child of divorce by any means, uh, life experience and just seeing the world around me and how much just hate and difference people try to find with one another to for some reason cast another human being or another entity as something lesser or worse and seeing et in this environment and in this headspace i think it 
was all emotion for me and all just like what does it mean to connect with someone or something without any judgment or bias or preconceived notion and just to exist in one another's presence and to get to know one another i mean i'm talking about a kid talking to an alien and feeding him Reese's pieces and having him walk around his house but this is the what it made me think of and i think there's just something so just real and human and like untainted by the ills of society about elliot the character in this movie just welcoming in this et and the (laughs) extraterrestrial and then the plot point of them just like feeling everything the other person feels and if we could feel what other people feel i think we'd be i mean it's and what is it an empathic uh kind of connection they have if we could feel that empathy for other people um always and always consider another person's feelings and perspective world would just be such a better place i mean this from a subtlety and a nuance perspective about just thinking about other people's emotions and other people's existence as their own thing i'm a person you're a person we are all the center of our own universe but we also need to think about how our actions impact other people there's a scene early in the movie I think Elliot develops this over the course of the movie and becomes better for it by his connection with E.T., where his mother, who has recently gotten separated from her husband, and uh, she makes a comment over dinner about uh, talking about saying something to her father, and he's he makes the off-the-hand comment. He's with Sally in Mexico, so he's run off with his new... Uh, I'm going to use the word lover just because I can't think of what else to use here, and his brother comments like, Hey, have you ever just considered thinking about how someone else feels when you say something? And then that's basically just the movie from then on. And then point we get the scene with the frogs being dissected and I'm setting the frogs free. It's just a movie about thinking about how you go through the world and interact with the other living beings in the world. And wouldn't it be great if we all just treated them with empathy and with respect and, I mean, it's got the technical marvels that uh, of the, at the time like stand out, and it's just got re- really great performances from child actors and really great dialogue, really great writing like we were talking about before. This is just like a really funny movie. I mean, it, it surprised me because it, I just had no strong opinion one way or the other of this movie, and then it just unpacked all of these things about how i think every day you wake up try to be better and approach the world so just a lot going on as you see me process this you're getting out a lot of why i think it's it's his best and why it's his best directed movie uh it's not easy to get good performances out of kids it's very difficult to get great performances out of kids to get the performances spielberg gets for et when the movie hangs on it is something else entirely and there's so much that's just kind of tied into the lore of et at this point about the various things that spielberg did um techniques he employed to get those kind of performances out of henry thomas as elliot uh, out of drew barrymore as gertie and out of robert mcnaughton who was a little bit older as as michael 
the whole film shot sequentially, I think is one thing worth noting. And that is really impractical for a, like a movie on this scale with a production that complex, that is so impractical, but it was something Spielberg insisted on so that the kids could grow in their connection to ET. So that when they're saying goodbye to ET, they're saying goodbye to ET and that that all feels real. And I, I think the other thing then that comes true in all of that is it's like people always talk about wonder with Spielberg. We even did in talking about Nope a couple of weeks ago and parallels and references to Spielberg. Wonder is always the thing you come to. And it's a childlike wonder. It's at the heart of a lot of his films. It's why so many of his films are essentially family classics like E.T. certainly is. And it's Spielberg's ability to tap into that is unlike any other filmmaker of his stature. And honestly, unlike any other filmmaker ever, the way he thinks, the way he frames children, I don't mean literally within the frame. I mean, the way he treats them um, in his movies is very uncommon and is honestly, I think, the only way to make a movie about kids. This movie is all the richer for the fact that it is made entirely from the perspective that the kids are more compassionate, more understanding, and more emotionally intelligent, based purely on their instincts, based purely on the fact that they haven't been, I guess, sullied by the world yet, that they haven't grown tired and cynical. And so many key moments of the film work along with the kids making that assumption of, you know, not that they're just that they're keeping a secret from the adults in the movie, but they're keeping it because they don't trust them to do the right thing, which that is like, that's the thing, which as you're a child, you're just like, Oh, look at ET. And you're drawn to this story of kids. And you watch as an adult and it stops you in your tracks. And you're like, Jesus, like Spielberg has nailed it here. He has nailed the way people grow out of so many things that uh, I guess they're just like, oh, yeah, that's child. Like I've moved past that where I don't know. There's something much purer and tied to decency rather than innocence that's there that maybe people should make a more conscious effort to carry true. Um that to me is what makes this like the ultimate marvel it's because spielberg fully puts himself in a place makes this movie with a child's kind of eye uh, and also quite literally like so much of the film is shot at the eye level of a child and there's some really interesting shots including with playing with et um i love the the halloween the trick-or-treat sequence and they're walking down the street and you're getting kind of from et's perspective you do get a few kind of you know, all those moments in here, such as when he sees Yoda and Yoda acknowledges him. And yeah, there's there's some of uh, Spielberg looking out for his good friend George Lucas in this. Um, but I, I think that's that's what makes the movie, because I think you could give this script, this exact cast to a hundred other immensely talented directors that on paper you'd be like, yeah, I trust that director to make a good film. Any any number of them from across history, and I don't think they hit on what Spielberg does because he just has an ability to be like, 
let let's bring myself back there. If I'm making a movie that's about children that wants to give a childlike view of the world, but also wants to speak to adults and remind them of what that's like and why it's important to nurture that and to cherish that. The ability to pull that off is something else. Um, and I mean, we talk about all of that. The movie works for so many other reasons too. Like you watch today. Uh, I think there's, there's been a lot of writing over probably the last decade, even like as far as academically about E.T. as like a core foundational eco movie, which it's there. Like it really is there. E.T. is a botanist. <laughs> that's what E.T. and all his friends come to Earth to do. And that's like he's he's taking the plant back with him. And there's so many kind of undercurrents and motifs about the lack of respect people have for for what's around them and the people's first instincts when encountering something new it is also i mean not difficult to map any number of other differences whether it's race or whatever you might want to onto this movie where kids are confronted with a being that doesn't look exactly like them and their instinct is to befriend it not to turn it away to shun it to say you belong with your own people like that's not a factor in this movie at all and it's that's not how kids think and the fact that kids grow up to be adults who a lot of them far too many of them end up thinking in ways like that you watch a movie like E.T. and for those two hours, as just I'm aware how just saccharine and cheesy all of this sounds, but I genuinely find it to be true when you watch it. It's just you you don't understand coming out of it how people end up the way they do. Maybe they didn't see E.T. Maybe, maybe Andrew, if you had seen E.T. a bunch of times as a kid, you'd be a happier adult. This is just the key for everyone. I'm the. I think the great thing about ET is, it's not too late. It's not too late for anyone. You can watch it now, and the messages are still there. Honestly, might hit harder when you're an adult and you're able to look at it from that perspective. Yeah, it's it was surprising because I always thought of it as like a, uh, like okay, mom and dad want to watch a movie that's not going to want make them want to claw their own eyes out let's put on et this is steven spielberg and instead it just hit me right in the feelings another ending that <laughs> in a different way than jaws is just incredibly effective and emotional and something that c- could seem just over the top but just isn't as true to the story we've seen told what do you think uh spielberg thinks about uh, Matt Damon's character in The Martian being a botanist all those years later. Do you think? Uh, <laughs> do you think he's like what? What the hell was Andy Weir doing when he wrote this book? Or do you think he's flattered? I don't think he thinks about it at all. I know I wouldn't <laughs> if I was Steven Spielberg. I would not be thinking about Ridley Scott's The Martian. Just, there's no need. There's no need. You've you've already conquered. You have the ultimate botanist. The ultimate spaceman botanist, you've already it, been it, there. It has not that. occurred to me 
about how much the beginning of that movie is and book, I guess, is a ripoff until this moment when I'm thinking about, you know, E.T. is doing his botany work on Earth. And then, you know, all of the Scrolls lights. Scrolls reversed. They're they're so shiny. All of the lights. What what if then... Matt Damon is Elliot? What if Matt Damon is Elliot? Elliot grows up to be the character in The Martian. He's just returning the favor. How fortunate are we branching off of that that we live in a world where the sequel that was started to be written was never made that would have been that might have ruined any conversation we're having with this spielberg nailed it in the moment we're now left wouldn't have ruined it you know why okay. wouldn't have ruined it jaws 2 jaws 3 oh that's a really good point because there are a lot of stinkers in the uh the jaws world I'll be honest, I haven't seen them. I actually, I think I'm going to address that. I, I don't, I know they're not good, but I feel Buddy, like I the, should see Roy Scheider in Jaws 2. Yeah, yeah. You, I, I don't have as much of a recollection on that. I assume it's passable. I say I, with very mm, little knowledge. I, I don't the know Michael, if it's possible. The Michael Caine one is bonkers. So, so <laughs> if you get to that point. I honestly did not you know, know Michael Caine was in a Jaws movie, so... Um, you know, that might be a journey I have to go on. There's one thing you, you said there that I want to, because it almost brings us kind of full circle too, to the earlier part of this conversation. You mentioned E.T. as an example of a film that parents might put on because they want to watch something with their kids that won't make them want to call their eyes out. What exists today that parents will want to watch with their kids that won't make them want to claw their eyes out. I think there has been one standout example, something that's been held up as the thing that fits this standard for a long time. And that's Pixar. And that's fine. I don't think that's an adequate replacement because the reality is at that time, there was also classic Walt Disney animation to draw on, which maybe didn't have the humor of Pixar, but honestly, all perfectly watchable. Like, no parent is going to go crazy watching that in comparison to how they may feel watching Trolls World Tour or something like that today. And that's, again, like, maybe even more than just the why you do... Well, there's a part of this with Jaws that we'll touch on too before we wrap up, because what the question with E.T. that I come out with is, why does no one try to make family movies anymore? That seems when people talk about like the lack of blockbusters or high grossing stuff that isn't existing IP or that isn't, you know, I don't know, hell, superheroes existing IP. That just isn't that kind of stuff. The stuff that we see all the time. Part of me thinks what has been lost is original story time that the whole family will go to see that's that's literally that's how you make stuff successful it's it used to be the logical thing it's how can i target four quadrants which is very very difficult to do but i i think the honest answer is it comes from you've got to make something that has kind of a level of sincerity to it which certainly applies um to et i just don't know why that kind of story time it's just disappeared i know a certain scale of it has gone because studios don't take that risk but i also if you're speculating on 
I don't know if you put you and I, Andrew, in charge of a studio for a year and we were given all of the money allocated and it's like, what kind of movies do you want to release? Or here's here's a pile of 200 scripts. What are you going to what are you going to green light? What's you're looking to get people out to theaters? You're looking to turn a profit. What kind of movies are you going to you going to make to do that? Like, I think there's some pretty obvious things. Horror is always one, and horror still holds up today. You can get people out to theater for horror. Always, consistently. I think, like, a family movie that, for example, could play 40 years later with a screening which is nearly all adults and play just as well, have people laughing throughout, have people crying. Like, it doesn't get much better than that for business for getting people invested in something and for getting something that you know they may go see multiple times or they'll you know they'll pay to have your streaming service so the kid can watch it 200 times or they'll buy the blu-ray or whatever it might be like i just i don't know what the last thing was that wasn't just oh look here's this piece of ip and it's family friendly that is made with any kind of scale that is really targeting in a way that's plausible that adults are going to go along and they're going to like this just as much as kids. It feels like it's only like Pixar. There's other exceptions, maybe to Pixar, but you're still looking at an animated space. What happened to really high quality family live action? I mean, is it that I wouldn't even say this is correct because he wasn't necessarily making those post this but there's no young spielberg type director that's given the license to do something like that and i guess is it because can i can i counter that because there is there's one film in recent years that i don't think i don't think you've seen in spite of i would say the director being one of your favorite directors that made me think also should paddington have been this well, Paddington, Paddington kind of is that though. That's a good, good call. Like Paddington probably should have been bigger, but I think Paddington struggles to be big at the level ET once was because movies like that don't is get it, made often. Is so, it because he's so, a monarchist? <laughs> oh, I'm not. I'm not going to interrogate what people have done to Paddington against his will in the past two years. That's that's something we're not having on this podcast. Uh, I I have you know I'll watch anything Paddington. I haven't watched that. I will not watch that, and I do not approve of his usage. Glad you got such entertainment out of that, Andrew. Um, the film I was thinking of, which just is IP, comes with a big studio. It's technically a remake. David Lowry's Pete's Dragon for Disney, which fascinated me at the time what Disney saw in David Lowry and the kind of films he was making that they were like, sure, we're going to give you a live action movie to make. I, I love Pete's Dragon. I think it's great. I think it's exactly this kind of movie. Um, even thematically in a lot of ways, it's got Robert Redford in it. Um, really, really good movie. Like something the whole family could watch and enjoy and not want to claw their eyes out. What is David Lowry doing next? He's doing the live-action Peter Pan remake for Disney. 
Like maybe that is the only way this happens and there's just not enough of that to go around. I don't know. But like there is a filmmaker who I 100% think has the talent. I'm not saying he is Steven Spielberg level talented, but a really talented visionary filmmaker who's done some great stuff. Uh, the Green Knight, I didn't love as much as everyone else, but people like flipped out for The Green Knight, which is not a film for kids, but also does contain kind of the original spirit that again, you could see, okay, this guy gets it. You and I were... I think borderline obsessed with a ghost story. Like there's a filmmaker. That's, that's an example of someone where it's just like, why, why does it have to be that David Larry is making Pete's dragon and Peter Pan, as opposed to like the family version of the green Knight? not in a literal sense, but something he's conceiving himself. Not that he conceived that either. Again, that was kind of IP. This is the hell we live in, Andrew. Everything needs to be something else to get made. And with that, the play studios have got themselves to is untenable. This is why the whole system's collapsing because you're, Amazon, you're like, oh, we don't have a TV series. We need to get a big hit. You have to go and buy the rights to Lord of the Rings to do that. First of all, that's not tenable. You're Disney. You're like, animation isn't working for us anymore. We're not the power we used to be. We need to buy Star Wars. We need to buy Marvel. Like, it, it's what it all comes down to. It's all that's left because these big conglomerates have had to stake themselves to that. And it's just erase the stuff that allows them to make money. Because the great thing about an ET is you didn't have to spend hundreds of millions buying the rights to ET to make ET. Like just the the opportunity for a film to be a success in this kind of organic way. And something we haven't mentioned with both of these films, like Jaws basically transformed what a movie could do to make money with merchandising because of the scouts. It was the original film that spun off into look at how much money you can make after the fact, look at how much you can sell. Star Wars doesn't get to benefit from that a couple of years later, if not for the success Jaws had in that regard. E.T., same again. To this day, you can sell E.T. like plush toys, E.T. action figures, whatever it is doesn't exist anymore no one is brave enough to do that and when they are or if even if it's something little known like say paddington was in the u.s the audience doesn't go to see it because they don't get served up enough of it anymore it's why the whole system is failing andrew one one thing on jaws just similarly um and i'll I'll let you just share your thoughts on all this in watching jaws today i was struck by just how mind-numbingly dumb Jaws is like on paper and how a different filmmaker different people behind it it is a terrible movie that no one ever cares about and that is the tin line that exists that you can always get on the right side of like it's it's such a simple setup it's such a ridiculous setup and when it's been done wrong which it has been done wrong in many films it's laughable but if you do it right Everyone comes out to see it. And nobody tries to make things like that anymore. It's like, 
it has to go so far beyond just there's a there's a shark and it's going to terrorize this this small community this island community anyway they're my parts of the rant over but i think those two things are related in terms of why this doesn't happen anymore and why it's a big missed opportunity uh i think that applies to a few other spielberg movies as well and that makes him unique i mean you could say the same for et you could say the same for jurassic park and we've seen what happens when it isn't steven spielberg making jurassic park anymore very true uh, and yeah so what we're saying here is i'm starting with an ain't them body saints rewatch for the first time in about 10 years and then i'm going all the way uh to to peter pan and wendy in 2023 and i'm just getting in on the Lowry train before he saves uh, family movies for the next decade. I mean, I'm in I'll, on the Lowry I'll train. See, I don't we'll, know what I'm talking We'll probably do a Peter Pan pod just for a reason to like do a full David Lowry pod. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting discussion because I think I like the Green Knight a whole lot more than you do based on these comments, so that's fun. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's tough to imagine something like either movie getting made on the scale that Spielberg did it in when he did it. Um, on any scale. To your point. On yeah, any but scale. To, but to your point, something that I just had not recognized is there are filmmakers who could do it. The system is just not up, not set up to let them do it. Uh, any uh, other overarching things I have about Spielberg, Spielberg or Jaws or E.T. is that, you know, some things that have a reputation you watch or you show up to and you're like, nah, that sucks. That's, that's, you know, everyone's overriding this. These just aren't that. So go in with your, if you, if you're someone that just like, hasn't seen these movies for whatever reason, then it's just like, I mean, cause there are people like that. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day who I thought would be of age to where this would have been, like something they had seen but they had never seen the godfather and so like i would put these in that type of category of like movies you need to see before you die so if you're in that category just never got around to it i mean these movies came out a long time ago i would say with all these expectations we're leveling on these films it's just they're great for a reason they're remembered the way they are for a reason they're coming out in cinemas during a time when they're needed for a reason um you mentioned the score earlier i will say that i think uh, star wars whatever uh big fan of that as well but i i let the et credits play for about mm-hmm. f- till they were done <laughs> because it just kept playing so i think that was it's funny because not something that's always going to be the first thing that comes to my mind and then and et just the big bold swelling nature of everything i mean just gives when those bikes movies. take off, Andrew, when they lift off and John Williams' score swells, like that's that's cinema. That is cinema. Like the yeah, and it get in a theater to feel like that is it's genuinely it's goosebump stuff. Like that's the power of screen of this size, speakers of this power, and you've got music of that quality. You don't get that very often. Harry Styles said it best. It's a movie that feels like a movie and uh you know i don't think i can say it better 
sure. I think I had a point on something that I was going to use to wrap up, and it's... Oh, I know what I was going to say. Spielberg is the Beatles. That's that's what I was going to say. To your thing, Spielberg is the Beatles. Um, he is just so kind of deeply ingrained in everything that is mainstream and that is there, just ubiquitous in life. Everyone knows him, knows his work to some extent, but maybe gets taken for granted because of that instead of just getting fully appreciated where you dive in you're like holy shit the beatles are good you know the beatles are really the greatest there's ever been like there there is part of that at work when you when you go back and you revisit some of some of these spielberg movies i mean jaws i think is one that maybe people watch more often i have to see it on tv they'll tune in et is though a classic example of one that maybe passes people by they get older Unless the reason comes along, unless they have someone pestering them for a podcast, being like, you need to rewatch E.T., maybe they don't revisit it. And it's like, no, listen, listen to the Beatles, watch Spielberg. These are these are not yours. There are a reason these things are as widely beloved as they are. Sometimes when something has a reputation like that, everyone is actually right. Not always, but sometimes everyone is actually right. In your own time offline, uh, I need you to tell me who Oasis is, but that's a the Beatles comparison spot on. Okay, I'll have to think about that. Uh, that does it, I think, for us. That's a pretty comprehensive talk. Got a lot of stuff around these movies, what they represent in 2022. And who knows, we may talk a little bit more about them although more briefly when the fablemans comes out maybe we should do a bigger spielberg episode too um but all counts fablemans sounds like it's pretty good buzz out of festivals has been about as strong as anything this year my expectations for the fablemans spielberg's autobiographical um movie about his childhood and his formative years getting into film it was not top of my most anticipated movies for the year, but that is shifting because it seems like everyone really, really loved it. So very excited to see that. And we will talk more about Spielberg later in the year. Um, the big news from the movie world this week, also for this year, for this decade, the biggest movie news, honestly, that I can think of for quite some time um, was unfortunately the passing of Jean-Luc Godard earlier this week. Um, Godard is <laughs> Godard is cinema is something I've seen a lot of people and a lot of the obituaries put as, and honestly, it's very hard to dispute. Uh, at 91 years old, he had a long, illustrious life. Also, his career very much long, illustrious, ever-changing, ever-evolving one of the most interesting and radical voices the medium has ever seen, and someone who just none of this today looks like it does. I mean that in the positive sense. I don't mean that in a lot of the stuff we're complaining about today uh, without Godard. And even to talk about Spielberg, Spielberg, Scorsese, De Palma, Schrader, Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, all of those guys, the new Hollywood, the American New Wave, they only came to be because they saw Godard and they wanted to take his principles and apply them to what Hollywood movies were. They all spoke about it at length. So even the conversation we just had probably can't be had 
without his influence. So next week on the pod to uh, to celebrate his life's work as much as anything else, uh, we are going to talk with Jean-Luc Godard. It's going to be some of a crash course. He's a filmmaker that Andrew has not previously taken the dive into. Um, so this seems like a good opportunity to do so. I gave Andrew a selection of a few films to work through. Um, do you have those to hand? There's definitely, uh, apologies to anyone listening who's a big Godard head. This is something we need to turn around in the weeks. This is not a comprehensive list. But I tried to give a decent mix of the non-experimental Godard for now. Maybe that could be a different pod down the line. Uh, but if anyone else is hearing about Jean-Luc Godard, is really into movies that have never watched his movies before, would like to come along on the journey. These are some of the films that we may find ourselves talking about next week. Yeah, you want me to let it rip? And see yeah, if, first, if you've got them. I was buying time though? because, oh, well, yeah, I forgot about that album. I do. I think you're fine. I have in front of me. Uh, Breathless. Yeah. Le Mepri. Le Mepri, Contempt, as it's alternatively known. Bandy Apart. That would be Band Apart. Okay. <laughs> Alphaville. Alphaville, yes. Easy one. Vivre Savi. Yeah, was, sure. Masculine, feminine. <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> so they're in my notes app on my phone. Was that, that the list? That's six. I yeah. think it was six. Yeah, this is look. what the co- this, this is what the copy picked up from copy and paste. Yeah, so. no, that's that's this was a challenge trying to think what where do you start with a like a beginner's guide to Godar? That's what I've come down as. Maybe some people will be disappointed. I've left some out there, but look, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how many Andrew gets true. And I'm excited to talk about that next week and to, I don't know, I guess talk about him in broad strokes. Uh, I am by no means the foremost scholar on Godard, like I would put myself on some other filmmakers, uh, but his influence is undeniable. And I, I don't think that anyone really tends to be immune to that. Uh, I remember seeing Breathless for the first time and the effect that had on me and the effect that Breathless had on the look of filmmaking uh, is just almost beyond compare. Not not many other films have managed to do that. So we'll talk through all of that next week. We'll talk about Godard's legacy, and it'll be a little bit different, but I think it should be should be a fun one. Until then, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let's make time for this. It's where you'll find every episode of Captured in Celluloid, it's also where you'll find any additional episodes we do. We'll probably do some more TV talk soon. A couple things on the horizon that we might do for that. Um, I think we need to we need to probably do a a football, a Premier League, or a Champions League episode at some point. We we did say this pod would have non uh, other GSPN sport related stuff. So some of the sports that fall outside of that will probably feature from time to time i think that's that's something that sooner rather than later we'll probably find a a reason to do if my team ever plays again in the yeah league, but that also that it. also applies for my team so oh yeah, yes i forgot about that <laughs> that's unfortunate so maybe we'll work that out for a couple of weeks from now of course if you're listening to us 
You may well also listen to some other podcasts on the Ursa Podcast Network. If not, you should, you know, address that. It's time to get on board. If you want to hear more from Andrew and myself, we host Cruising for a Bruising, talking all things Milwaukee Brewers. There is also the Eurostep podcast and Win in Six, which you'll find both on the main Eurostep podcast network feed. Tywin Jerome Caddy hosting Eurostep. Myself and Jordan Tresky hosting Win in Six. And most recently, along with Make Time for This, the other new addition to the Eurostep podcast network is Talk of the Tundra, our Green Bay Packers podcast hosted by our good friend Numak. You'll hear me on there from time to time. Ty seems to be making himself a mainstay. Jordan's been on there. You've been on there. It's going to be, a, you know, the whole GSPM family, one point or other, are going to be on Talk of the Tundra talking about the Green Bay Packers and all things NFL. So if that's your fancy, you can go check that one out too. I think that's pretty much it. We're on Twitter at Make Time for This. I'm at Adam Eleven, Andrew's at AC Snide. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star rating and review. Until next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.